Hi there. I'll make this quick. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash duckfeedtv. Check out the tiers, see what you can give, and we appreciate every little bit. Once again, that is patreon.com slash duckfeedtv. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King. My name is Cole Ross, and today I am joined once again by Zach Johnson. Hey, Zach. Hey, Cole. Hey. Welcome back. Yeah. Yeah, it's super nice to have you. We're here to uh, to continue talking about the first part of this book, Todash. Lots of l- lots of talking and lots of setup. Yeah, we we learned a tremendous amount in this section, and. Uh... Other than that, not a ton happens. Right, right. It's one of those. It's one of those awkward things where it is definitely by page count equal to some of the some of the other stuff. It's just uh, there's not an awful lot of incident. It's just uh, dense, I think, with uh, with a lot of details that are going to be important later, and also yeah, some funny man. scenes. Like Eddie gets real scared by a robot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But the robot saves him from a fate arguably worse than death. So. Yes, yes. Oh, and how your bottom would itch. <laughs> yeah. Nah, that Andy. No, Always a delight. Andy, would you like your horoscope? Don't wipe with that. Um, yeah. So we can go ahead and get started. So last time we talked about uh, kind of uh, the Kotet's arrival at Endworld after having, you know, progressed beyond the emerald uh palace and and whatnot uh beforehand we also learned about these borderlands and one particular village along the borderlands the cala calibrin sturgis specifically that happens to harbor another kind of refugee from a, a version of our world one uh father donald callahan uh from salem's lot uh and they have kind of ventured out to make an appeal uh to the Cotet. Uh, for protection from, well, a malevolent force that we're going to learn um, uh, an awful lot more about here. We're going to get more details. Um, and yeah, so at the end of last section, uh, Eddie and Jake had a very strange dream where they were in New York, but not. And it was kind of like my house and you were there, but it wasn't really you. Yeah. Yeah, it was my grandma's house, but it was also my elementary school. Yeah, something like that. And I kept on, ooh, I ate, a, I ate the world's biggest marshmallow. When I woke up, my wife had left me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, so a- a- Eddie kind of, uh, uh, and Jake, they you know, were anxious about this, and they you know talked to Roland about this. Meanwhile, Susan, who was out there squeezing frogs, you know, she says, oh, I slept like a rock. Um, and it's good that we start getting a little bit more of Su- uh, uh, Susanna's, um, I said Susan before that's a different person. It's good that we get a little bit more of Susanna's kind of inner world in this to a certain extent, like her conception of what is going on with her. Yeah. And Roland is still keeping very quiet about it. Yeah. He's got like, uh, he's, he's got the voices in his head. He's got court and he has Van A and all these people, you know, kind of like giving him guidance about like, all right, you know, let us basically, they'll just cross that bridge when you get to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't want to burden Eddie with the, the, the fact that his wife is maybe pregnant with a demon baby. Right. Right. And he also doesn't want to, uh, get to this flashpoint that is absolutely going to happen later in this book. 
which is uh yeah eddie wants to firmly believe that it's his um you know and all of that so um uh, we, we we talked about this last time a little bit for, for a refresher the the, the todash state uh you know this kind of weird dream that they had it's this kind of most sacred right of the uh, many people they go to great wing uh, go to great lengths to induce it and a wizard's glass will also make it happen too uh that's pretty important we're going to find out uh i think at the very end of this section or at the very end of this chapter um <laughs> what did you think of this author appeal another one of these i don't know maybe i'm sensitive to this but when uh susanna compares um you know how jack andalini and, and enrico balazar show up again here she's like oh yeah it's like dickens like it's always full of these coincidences like what, 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 do, you, what do you think of that as a as a move on king's part it gets it gets a little weird i mean it it you know, we we learn later in the series where he's going with this, and this almost felt to me like he was having the characters sort of hash out the anxiety that he was having about deciding to go this direction with things. Right. It, the the you know the the wizards the wizards glass they they seem to send you to like very important plot relevant times and places yeah. in their weird magical dreamlike state, <laughs> um, and and. You know, I think it's later in this chapter when they start talking about doing it again on purpose mm-hmm. to try to achieve a, a specific aim that felt that felt like evidence that we're past this kind of turning point in the series where rather than just sort of writing the parts of his magnum opus as they come to him uh, in their own sweet time, King is like, all right, it's time to finish this it's time to start making the plot happen rather than letting the plot happen. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a little, it's a little weird, you know, it, it, and I think he, he kind of lampshades it by saying, Oh yeah. You know, people don't like these stories because they're full of coincidences. (laughs) Roland said, Roland says to Susanna, who is Dickens and what is a novel? (laughs) (laughs) Like the most like kindergarten cop, like (laughs) one liner from, Oh, you, you see, you see, one of the cities has a penis, and the other city has a vagina. Yeah, <laughs> the man, it like it seems weird to me that this is what would come up. That like this is when this would come up. Uh huh. You know, like they, they never mentioned this before in all of the all of the lonesome nights along the great road yeah. along the path of the beam. Just nobody ever mentioned a. The the, hmm. the the concept of a of of a novel like right. it, it, it tracks and makes a little bit of sense right because like Roland knows that our world you know we 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 waste paper like crazy we literally wipe our asses with it um <laughs> it seems like it would have like it would have come together uh, a, a little bit but the fact that like oh in a world where paper is scarce novels wouldn't actually be a thing like it's more of an oral tradition yeah it's it's definitely just played for comedy which is I, I laughed. Yep. Nope. That's pretty good. It's just, it's just weird to think that like, you know, aspirin and sandwiches have become this running gag mm-hmm. since like the second book of the series. But yep. now we're like, you know what, how, how long have they been hanging out now? M- months, if not like a year. Right. And it's right. just, nope, nope. We, and I, I was trying to think like, how much time do I spend talking about novels as a sort of concept versus talking about aspirin and sandwiches just to, <laughs> to people that I, <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't i i i would like to, to to look under the hood and see if that see if that data is being like uh, uh tracked somewhere yeah 
Yeah. It'll be you know once once we get to heaven and we can look back at the stats. Oh it'll yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to recall this and yeah. it's the, the 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 alpha protocol stat sheet. Like I made that many orphans, <laughs> Jesus. Um. <laughs> so so yeah. There's also you know just as uh, Susanna's outlining this, saying like yeah, you know in these in the in these books by this Dickens guy who was paid by the word. Um, you know, there, there, there were a lot of coincidences, important people just happened to show up at important times to do important things. And you just had to accept that. And Roland says, anybody who calls that coincidence has never heard of Ka. And that is also pretty much a direct statement, you know, whereas before Ka was duty, right? Ka was, you know, this combination of both destiny and also like a thing you must do. Um, here Ka ends up being something that they start hand waving as like, okay, uh, it's basically just another word for coincidence. Yeah. Just like a wizard did it. Yeah. It's Ka. A wizard's glass did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in uh, talking about that, they also start talking about Calvin tower and I hadn't reread this part when we talked about it last week, they specifically, um, they specifically, uh, underline how little sense the, the, um, the, the, the document makes the agreement that Calvin tower made, um, with Jack Sayer at Sombra that was being executed by Andalini and Balazar. Um, <laughs> to basically get paid to maybe think about selling a piece of land, Susanna right. right rightly calls out saying like, "Yeah, that um that doesn't make sense without a topping clause. Like, <laughs> there's nothing there that says if somebody comes along and makes a better offer, you can't sell." A topping a topping clause is like that guy who uh, shows up at your house on Christmas and puts chili <laughs> on your hot dog for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just got a bandolier of different sauces. <laughs> hey, topping, can I get some nacho cheese? <laughs> some magic shell on this, uh, on this Sunday, please? <laughs> Matt, can I get some magic shell on this hamburger? Oh, rats. Yeah. Uh, topping clause has been drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um and this causes them to well A try to get inside Calvin Tower's head. One of my favorite things about this is the much earned disdain that everybody has for Calvin Tower. We're nowhere near kind of the height of this and the height of the frustration that Calvin Tower is going to put everybody through. <laughs> um but uh yeah, they're just kind of like trying to figure out like okay, he's he's this guy who's stuck between two things. Apparently he comes from this long line of custodians of the tower, doesn't realize it, you know, going all the way back to his days, you know, basically uh, uh, to his family's days like back in the Netherlands, you know, Dutch Hill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's torn between that and also just <laughs> being a, a a nerd, being a guy who just kind of wants to um be around books and be around people who talk like books talk, not talk like books jesus talk about books <laughs> yeah it's kind of it, it makes me a little sad just because like he was such a likable dude when he appears in yes. the wastelands right and then like it's like well we need to make him a tragic character in the sense of him just having this sort of like i don't know hamlet style flaw of being unable to like get over himself and make up his mind about anything <laughs> right they say that he's the. They deduce that he's the last of his line because he's not wearing a wedding ring. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of a like. Uh, that's I don't know, a, that's you know? a little I mean, mid twentieth like, century. <laughs> gunsling, gunslinger powers of observation. Like, well, you know, there's a lot of difference. <laughs> there's, 
a lot of different options there. For... Yeah, uh, the, the the I don't know that a married that that a wife would let a married man uh, throw that much money into that hole. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you know he's he's married to his books. Yes, he is. He he, he is married to the restaurant of the mind. Um, so you end up feeling a little bit bad for him, but it's just it is also it is also pretty funny to me. How much? Any any time, any time the gunslingers from our world run up against somebody else who is not like them, and rem, it reminds them of what they of, of kind of how they used to how they used to be. I mean, Eddie is most obvious because he frames everything in terms of everything being an addiction. He's like fucking Doctor Drew, um, right? <laughs> right? You know, he 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 notes at some point that you know Tower is a junkie for his books. Yeah, they as being the last, the last of his line, who's in the process of squandering an ancestral fortune. They, uh, they, they compare him to, you know, the minor celebrity of the time, Donald Trump. Yeah, whatever happened know, to that guy? Whatever happened to that guy? You know, that guy who was famous for all those bankruptcies and somehow uh, losing money on a casino. Yeah, yeah. weird. Just uh. Um. Yeah. Later on, Susanna still doesn't believe that Ronald Reagan was ever president. How would she feel about? Like, oh, hey, you know, noted dipshit Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like you, you, just, you, you get a, a fourth door opens, and one of us goes in and says, "Hey, guess what? You thought Reagan was a trip?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we, we we better stop about this before we hit our thousandth hour. <sighs> you, you, you ever you ever get that? Like you you broach something vaguely political, and people say, "Oh, they talked about this for hours and hours, and yep. ten minutes." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a bugbear of mine but i i noted that that is pretty funny but his instinct is to protect the rose like there's a reason why you know even in the face of all of that money uh that he could get for that patch of land millions and millions that would let him coast on it if he invested it he is still holding on to it right yeah and this is like the last it seems it seems like it's this is the last thing he has that's worth any money He's sold everything else to keep his 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 failing bookstore afloat. This is a little dubious as a plot point to mm -hmm. me because it's like, how much can it possibly cost to keep that thing going, right? Even if it's making no money at all, nobody else works there. And I guess, you know, rent goes up over time, eats up multiple buildings worth of holdings. <laughs> I but, guess, but, yeah. but sure, maybe, maybe it's way bigger. Maybe it's like a, a, a building sized warehouse full of books. Oh yeah. He's out there running a, a Powell's of New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? That actually, you're, you're, you're right about that. And there's also like a little bit of like convenient mysticism to it, which blast trilogy dot text, um, a, a bit, but a bit of convenient mysticism about the fact that like, okay, the, the, the dark forces that are at work here, you know, Kyle Katarn and what have you. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, they can't actually do anything with the Rose unless they own the land that is under it. Like, we are operating in a universe where vampires still have to be invited in to, you know, to do something. Like, there is that weird contractual nature of it. But just the fact that this is the last, the last patch is, I, mean, I think, Stephen King, I think, laying it on, laying on the new urgency. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, you know, maybe it makes some sense that Sombra can't enact their plans without being able to build a facility around the Rose. Yeah. And they can't, you know, it, it is, you know, it's it's not like too hand wavy to say you're not allowed to build 
a, a giant menacing obelisk on a, <laughs> on a lot in New York City that you don't own. But um, yeah, community gardens, you know, just go in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the thing. They could have dis- <laughs> they could have uh, you know just disguised it as like a you know a basketball court for the neighborhood kids. <laughs> yeah, like the, you know that community you center know. that ended all of the universes. Yeah. So you know, we just we wanted to put this uh, basketball court on top of like a giant obsidian cube, just so the kids would have a better view. You know, yeah, you know, and uh, we put those big red eyes on the side just to make sure that everybody knew, hey, we're keeping an eye on this. We're watching the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you're so suspicious of us. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the plan right now is for Sombra uh, to uh, build condos there, uh, which is very funny. Um, just as a, as a concern, you know, paving paradise literally and putting up, putting up condos. Uh, so Susanna cannily proposes a plan, you know, with her understanding of the way travel between the worlds works says, all right, well, if we go back in time, if we, if we go back to shortly after I disappeared, I go to our, our company's accountant who is now running Holmes dental industry, um, get the money that we need for the deal, bring that back here, open up another door, go to, go, go to tower and buy the, buy the lot out from under Sombra. To which Roland says, yeah, so you guys are tripping over doors left and right. I've been wandering for a thousand years and saw three of them. Yeah, I think this is the first time that's actually revealed where he says he's been doing this for a thousand years. Yes. It's, um, it's been said. Which it of- just kind of goes by without comment, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they, they talk about like, like a little, a few pieces of that are there. Just the idea that everybody, you know, thinks that, you know gunslingers are generations and generations gone when it doesn't make sense that roland is still alive you know were the that word wouldn't have gotten out about that um and especially i think in the first book there's a lot more kind of implied softness of time that's gone here but like the idea is like he says oh i i didn't experience all of that i was like a bird who was skimming over the crests of different waves yeah I mean, I guess the the first book does end with him apparently falling asleep for like hundreds of years. Yes. So yeah, yeah. And, and and waking up having having aged a decade. So it's it's kind of strange because it's still. It's, am I wrong in saying it's still a little bit vague? Like it has been a thousand years, but has he been searching for a thousand years? Yeah. No. It's it's yeah. not. And I mean, you know, it just it seemed a little strange to me that nobody was like weird. You know, <laughs> like, they just they huh. just like sort of no no well okay anyway back to our <laughs> insane time travel plan yeah back, back to talking about aiming a door like a gun <laughs> No. Um, but when they say that, uh, guess who shows up? But Donald Callahan saying, you know, "Did somebody mention aiming a door like a gun?" No. Um, and this is great. I love this. I love Donald yeah, Callahan. I, I so love them good. meeting people from Earth. <laughs> Yep, his exchange with uh, his exchange with Eddie when he finds out that Eddie is from a few years uh, in the future from when he left Earth and uh, asks him if his baseball team has ever has won the World Series in the meantime. <laughs> you say like, okay, the the first thing that I need to know, you know, not 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 so much like, oh, you know, like how how is this how is peace in the Middle East going? No, I need to know if the Red Sox ever won the World Series. And <laughs> Eddie is super sorry. Eddie could have just lied. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yep, that went it every year since he disappeared, champ. No, but Eddie tells him the truth. He says, like, yeah, they biffed a play last year. Guy's never going to live it down, et cetera, et cetera. 
um and payment for this callahan <laughs> just lets loose with a string of um not aphorisms but uh idioms i guess yeah just a bunch of they they just love hearing slang from their world and their time so they just, <laughs> you just uses a, a long list of of idioms kind of non sequitur <laughs> yep you guess why you're up shit creek without a without a paddle et cetera et cetera um and yeah they're fast friends <laughs> so uh and Callahan makes a little bit of the initial kind of plea for help saying like hey i'm here with a group uh oh you've known that we're we've been following you for two for two days well shit we tried really hard we're gonna ask you to do something i needed to convince them to to actually ask you to do it roland says no that's that's not going to work um we can't convince you to ask us to help you you need to ask us yeah and it's it gets like so much of the interactions between Roland and these people over the next couple of chapters are Roland sort of insisting that everything be bound by the ancient protocols. And then everyone just kind of acknowledging that everything that's going to happen is a foregone conclusion, no matter what anyone wants. Yes. Um, even, even Roland know. himself saying like, regardless, you know, the, 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 the way of eld is the way of duty, like all of this asking for aid and sucker, you know, these, uh, these three questions, <laughs> like that is a formality, but you know, we will stand and like probably Jaffords will stand and whoever else is there. Yeah. As soon as Ka reveals to us that anyone needs help, we are bound by Ka to help them. Yeah. And this is, this is later, but Eddie raises a good point saying like how, how embarrassed will you be, you know, if you're lying, you know, if you're dying in a ditch somewhere and you think, oh, I blew my chance at the tower just to help some podunk town. And Roland's rejoinder to that is saying, you know, if we don't stick to our principles, you know, we'll die. We'll die, you know, thousands of miles before we reach the tower anyway. Yeah, we don't deserve the tower unless we're willing to follow its rules. Right. So that is a little bit of a subversion of the uh, of the Magnificent Seven side of this, too. Yeah, because yeah. Callahan offers him offers him the black thirteen, the the bend of the wizard's rainbow that he has, and Roland is like, nope, 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 nope. If you're a cop, if you're if you're a cop, you have to tell me, and you're not allowed to offer me a reward. So <laughs> let's just uh, maybe we'll take it off your hands. Yeah, that said, that's also helping, isn't I'm, it? Yeah, I, I'm the wink, wink. I, I'm the opposite of a witcher, uh, and also <laughs> and and also, um, if we buy the bed frame, maybe you throw in the mattress for free. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just a, an awful lot of uh, kind of shucking and jiving with the uh, with with the contractual negotiations here. But yeah, like even that's a foregone conclusion. Roland says he's terrified of it. You know, when he says, "Oh, I've got Black 13, you know, it is almost an admission of just like being forsaken. Like he desperately wants this thing out from under his church. Which cool place to keep it, bro? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> under the floorboards of your church, you know, down there in the apartment where we keep our murderer. <laughs> I... <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> so as they're as they're talking about this, um, and Callahan saying like, "Yeah, you're going to meet these people. There's going to be a there's going to be a big dude. He's real rich. He thinks he runs the town, and he kind of does. His name's Overholser. Jake, you know, he kind of flashes on that, saying, "Okay, wait a second. I recognize that." They rewind. Uh, and go back to the interaction with Calvin, you know, two, three books back, um, you know, where Calvin compliments Jake Chambers' names and like, oh, it's like something from a Wayne, Over uh, Wayne D. Overholzer book. 
Uh, and to kind of jog his memory, he pulls out the Charlie the Choo Choo book and notices that it is no longer written by Beryl Evans. It's not written by, um, uh, what is it, Claudia Inez Bachman. Um, there is no author information at all. I forget what this is alluding to. Do you remember or, or no, why this might I have happened? I, I don't. It it feels like a you know the Polaroid from Back to the Future, where <laughs> it is it is somehow reflecting something about the the sort of I don't know the 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 version of New York's timeline that they're currently following from. Yeah, uh, or or something. But yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I don't remember how or or if this ever pays off. Right. I, I, I don't either. Like it definitely has something when we get the cabinet of books in the, uh, in the cave with the unfound door, there's something about the, about the author's names in that. I'm not sure if that has something to do, like when they watched Jake in Keystone earth, get that book. This is, this is jumping ahead. This is like varsity level stuff. When he got the book from Keystone earth, did it overwrite the, the, the books from all the other ones? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. But it is uh, uh, treated with great import as, as we move on to the next chapter here, Overholzer, where the negotiations uh, with the Cala people um, kind of pick up. Uh, and Susanna's tasked with being kind of this invisible observer, which she laughs at. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, these people are probably sexist, so we should be too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she says, oh, okay. Yeah, just, just roll with the punches. This isn't great, but... <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and it, it, it ends up working. It ends up working a little bit. She does get a good, uh, a good glimpse. Before this happens, though, uh, we learn what Susanna thinks is happening with her morning sickness, uh, with, her, with, with, with her rumbly frog tumbly. Uh, she thinks she's got a, a, a what is it? Not hysterical pregnancy, false pregnancy. A, f a false pregnancy. What is that? Are we supposed to know what that is, or is this just? I mean, um, that's not a thing, right? Where I mean, it's like I, I start having morning sickness, and then my belly gets real big, but I'm not pregnant. I've 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 heard stories about stuff like that, but I've only ever known it to be like a an urban legend. Yeah. Like Susanna, she says, oh, I had an aunt who went through the same thing like four times. She swelled up big enough to be, you know, to be able to deliver twins. In my concept of the way the human, <laughs> the mechanism of the human body works, I don't know that that's possible. Yeah. It's more like a, like a, you know. A cautionary tale against swallowing watermelon seeds. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, sorry, I started swallowing gum seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I finally chewed enough gum that it's like, eh, it's like a baby's worth of gum. <laughs> Making me real nauseated. I, I you know, <laughs> carry around a real gum, baby. I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm craving weird food. Uh, <laughs> Mainly more gum. <laughs> Oh, uh, after they outlawed selling tapeworms to lose weight, you know, you just go around eating gum to fill up the space. Um, huh. So false pregnancy, also known as a phantom hysterical, uh, hysterical pregnancy, pregnancy scares or pseudosiasis. Yeah, I guess it's a thing. Weird. I know there's also sympathetic, like sympathetic pregnancy, like a, like a, uh, the husband or, you know, whoever's, whoever's with the woman long term will get like weird pregnancy like symptoms and sim like sim a sympathetic response but i don't know I, yeah. I i i am out of my depth here 
There was that documentary about when Arnold Schwarzenegger had a baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Danny DeVito <laughs> so was there. Similar, similar weird circumstances. <laughs> Second, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. Not, and, uh, yeah. Kindergarten Cop and Junior, but none of the... Uh, None of the greatest hits yet, exactly. Yeah, well, we'll get to the twins later. One of them's huge, and one of them, all the rest of them are tiny. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, but that's what she thinks is go- going on, and the cause of that is she just really wants to have a baby with Eddie, you know? Um, yeah. And there's kind of an ominous thing here, saying more than anything else in the world, she wanted Eddie Dean's chap growing in her belly. Can't see the word chap without thinking about what's going on with her anymore. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Um, something that, that goes on over the course of these next couple of chapters that I want to talk about a little bit is the kind of heartwarming slash sad relationship between Jake and Benny Sleitman. Yeah, Benny Sleitman is the the son of one of the farmers that is in the party that sent out to meet them. Yes. He's uh, he's a little bit older than Jake, but like immediately everybody notices that like, oh, this kid's soft. You know, because he grew up in civilization, eating steaks with mushroom gravy over top of them and stuff. Like he's, <laughs> yeah, and his dad isn't one of the like sort of rich farmers, but he has a, a position of some authority working for one of them. Yes, um, so he's like he's like middle class kid. Basically. Yeah, he's he, he's he's middle class, and also his anxiety over the over the uh, wolves comes from the fact that. Even though Benny was born as a twin, uh, his twin actually passed away, and he has no idea if uh, that means that Benny is going to be taken by default, leaving with leaving him with nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the the party that's been sent out kind of splits the difference, right? There's the there's the guy that only has a singleton. There's the guy that's definitely going to lose some kids, and then there's one guy that doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. And that that makes a certain amount of sense. You also have you also have Callahan, who um, is a little bit more versed in all of this, without even knowing that the gunslingers who are coming are from Earth. And Callahan just seems to uh, sort of be driven by justice in yes. this sense, and like you know, this it kind of yeah, it, it's it's unacceptable to just <laughs> let this continue to happen, right? Um. Yeah. So it's like, like, I call the relationship sad because like at at any other time uh, under any other circumstances, they could just be, you know, teens who went around and had fun, you know? Yeah. And Roland reflects on that too. How he's, you know, created the situation where Jake doesn't really get to have a childhood. Yeah. It turned out like Michael Jackson. Yeah. Ugh. Sucks. Um, so uh, we already talked about Roland believing that, yeah, it's our duty to help no matter what. They really don't like Overholzer, um, and Over- Overholzer seems to be really fickle about this as well. They go back and forth between kind of um, <laughs> uh, surmounting his self-interest and also um, falling back into that pit where he realizes how much is at stake if they decide, you know, if they, if they decide to fight and lose. King does describe it like it seems like King goes out of his way to make Overholzer at least a little bit sympathetic, though. Like he's not just like a mustache twirling villain. Like he keeps describing him as like not responding in the pompous way that they expected him to and kind of humanizing. Like they talk about him him, like telling a story about when he was a kid and how they notice him sort of pausing because it's difficult for him to get back into the position of being powerless and small. Um, and none of it felt, 
you know, it just it didn't feel overly like insulting to the character to me the way that he was portrayed here. No, but but yeah, the 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 Katet just they're sort of just agreed that he's a dick. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're like he's he's being obstructionist, and they and they understand that his motivation is kind of you know self interested, right? You know, as as the rich guy, he does have a lot to lose materially, but not to lose. Yeah, not a lot to lose in terms of actual close relation. He even, I think, refutes that saying, like, do you think I want to see half of the kids be taken away and brought back? Like, that's going to be terrible for everybody, including me. Like, they do a good job of making this complicated. I think that their frustration just kind of comes from the fact that he is he is a tough nut to crack and he keeps on kind of like (laughs) undoing their progress by 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 remembering uh, kind of by by temporarily not being charmed by their uh by 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 their gunslinger diplomacy, right? Right. Just continually reminding them that this is not a foregone conclusion yet. Yeah. Although he's like clearly being subtly hypnotized by <laughs> Roland's duty. Yes. <laughs> um. Of course, Overholzer's full name uh adds up to nineteen. His middle name is Dale. Um. Eddie does like a little trick with the information that he knows about Overholzer and the author Overholzer. Um, to say like, oh, I tell people's fortunes by this. I love this line because Overholzer makes like a a real show of like, you know, looking at Susanna and saying, okay, I need you to tell me, is that young man trig or a fool? Tell me I beg for I cannot tell myself. And Susanna says a little bit of both, which is about as good of a description of Eddie's, um, the way he presents himself as I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this also kind of sets up Overholzer as being sort of sharp and observant. Yes. Yeah. Um, something else here, because I read that quote and I tripped over the word canna. Um, <laughs> the group starts out, um, by which I mean the Katat, starts out imitating the uh, the, the, the speech of the uh, of the Kala folk. Um, just, you know, out of, I guess, the part of that gunslinger, gunslinger hypnotism. But after this point, they will all be talking like they're from the Kala. Saying do, do ya and a ya and stuff like that. <laughs> and that is just going to be a thing for the last three books. Yeah, it's a nice touch. Yeah. Um, I like it. And I also uh, fall into fall into say thank ya and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, uh, they returned over Overholzer's camp for uh, for dinner and Eddie is freaked out by Andy. Andy, who sneaks up behind Eddie and then tries to gaslight him into thinking, no, I wasn't sneaking at all. I was walking. Sigh. <laughs> Would you like a horoscope? <laughs> yeah. Is, it, does, is this when they go back there or does that, I thought that conversation happened during the poop thing. Um, I forget if that is the thing. He definitely, he definitely, uh, I, I think his reaction to seeing Andy after he comes up behind him is, oh, sweet Jesus. I, I can't recall if Eddie is just perpetually surprised by the seven foot robot. Yeah. It, I mean, it does seem like, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how it seems like everyone would be reacting to this thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess Roland's seen it all or at least read novels about it. All. <laughs> what's uh, a novel? But yeah. um, Oh, that robot. Yeah. He's fine. What's a, what's a book? <laughs> but, uh, okay. <laughs> okay, buddy. What is it? You um, humans call a kiss. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah <laughs> so they have the heartiest meal that they've had since river crossing uh but they don't talk much 
Yeah, uh, man, that food sounded good. Oh, yeah. This was like straight out of like Lord of the Rings or or The Hobbit or Redwall or something, the description that they gave. Uh, the fact that they have coffee for the first time. Yeah, sort of the first time we've seen it in Roland's world, right? Yeah. Because it was it was chicory in River Crossing. Yes. Um, and I think they, they say like between them, they down a gallon of the stuff. Which, yeah. why not? It makes sense. That's why Eddie has to poop. <laughs> I guess it primes the pump. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Eddie pooping uh, because they're, like the exposition about the Kalas can happen with the other exposition. Um, Eddie goes off into the woods and he almost <laughs> wipes himself with some leaves. Andy just happens to be skulking by and says, no, don't do that. Your bottom will itch ever so much. <laughs> 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 there's also another thing i forget when this happens but <laughs> andy in trying to divert everybody and you know do his whole uh i guess what is it like the demonstration mode on a clock radio is is is, is what i think he's doing with this uh, he says like oh how about i sing you a new song that i learned from my travels around the callas it has many amusing verses <laughs> i forget what the name of this song is but it sounded it just sounded like a song that was like you know, a drinking song that is <laughs> vaguely concealed about dicks. Yeah, yeah, just uh, 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 very chastely ribald, probably. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe, maybe just ribald itself. I don't know. Um, um, yeah, so Eddie, Eddie asks, uh, how do you know the wolves are coming? What are the wolves? Where do they come from? Mm-hmm. What is a novel? Uh, you know, what which, is a wolf? Also, yeah, makes <laughs> makes so. Uh, which again, it's like, yeah, seems like someone would have done this. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it, but it's Eddie, you know, audience reader surrogate Eddie Dean. Um, yeah, and the and the robot presses him for a password. The robot the robot turns into bad cop. Yes. And uh, asks him for a password. Yeah, like his. Says vo- he has ten seconds to give it. Yeah, his his voice loses all affect, and Eddie tries to kind of smart talk around it, saying like, "Oh, is this like a CIA thing? Like, you know, the the roses bloom in Cairo or whatever." <laughs> and, and Andy, who normally would just say, "I do not understand what you're talking about," can I can I recite an epic poem for you? Um, just goes, "Do not understand. <laughs> would you like to retry?" Like this is very serious because he is invoking Directive Nineteen. Uh, just like Andy knows how to do a bunch of things, uh, and his only uh, citation for why he knows stuff is his programming. When he doesn't want to say something, when something is protected, it is because of Directive 19. And he does. Uh, I'd sort of forgotten about this. He, when he asks Eddie if he wants his horoscope, Eddie, for the first time of anyone in the book, says, yeah, why not? <laughs> and the horoscope that Andy gives him is like, oh, yeah, you're going to go to New York tonight and and meet a dark lady. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, okay. So that horoscope was actually just you can see the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remembered that, but I forgot the actual uh, – when I was when I was going back through the uh, book for the notes, I couldn't find that text. So I'm happy you brought that up specifically. Yes, Andy, Andy does know things. I don't remember if we ever find out why. <laughs> but uh... No. So Andy has access to a bunch of stuff. He knows way, way more than he is letting on. Um, and he is written specifically to be untrustworthy. I think it's either Susanna or Eddie who points out that like, I know it's not possible for him to feel anything, but I swear to God, he sounds smug and it sounds like he is taking great joy in me being uncertain about him. Yeah. And that's a weird thing to make a robot do. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can have a robot that sounds pompous, 
right? You can have, uh, you know, C-3PO going around and talking down to people or what have you, but the fact that he is taking specific delight and seeming to intentionally toy with people, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of like a, oh, HAL 9000 is kind of going off the rails just a little bit. Right. Yeah. So they learn a lot about the surrounding areas here. Yeah, it spreads out 2,000 miles in either direction, uh, these different towns, these these Kalas. Uh, each town kind of has their own thing that they uh, either grow or raise or manufacture. It's this entire entire country that exists, you know, in a thin strip of land on the border between Midworld, a world that is ending, and Endworld, a world that has ended. And they can see Thunderclap off to the east, and it's just a big horizon-spanning storm. Yes. I love that. Uh, they, there's a Cala down south that's like Cala Vegas. Uh-huh. Um, but, <laughs> it, uh, it, is, it is a pleasure planet. Yeah. But the guy who's talking about it, uh, his wife his wife gives him the stink eye, so he stops. <laughs> Man, those people can party. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not interested in that. No, it's it just it's a thing you say. <laughs> um, yeah. So they also start talking about um, what happens to the kids when they're brought back. We've seen an example of somebody who is very thoroughly ruined, but we get more of an idea of the process. Um, you know, they're gone for a while after they're taken. You know, the the, the wolves always come at night. Um, and they're sent back, uh, after a few weeks, I think on trains, uh, nobody can discern how far they travel, but they're almost always half starved, um, you know, and covered with their, with their own mess, you know, so it is at least long enough for them to run out of supplies. Yeah. And the, and the trains are just one way. And, and Eddie says, oh, well, we could figure out how many times the wolves have come by counting the uh, counting the ditched trains off the side of it like yeah. Well, okay yeah that's it why were you the first person that that occurred to? <laughs> oh you we were just making houses out of those cars <laughs> <laughs> well they're they're also really unsure they ask they ask um just uh very hesitantly okay so these trains are they monorails perhaps uh, but no, wow. no, they're not. They're just regular, regular old choo choos. Um, the the Rune kids, they're completely without sex. Um, you know, they they regress from wherever they were when they were uh, taken. Um, if they're they're lucky to ever regain the ability of speech, they're lucky to regain the ability of like bladder control or continence in general. Um, and the real upsetting thing is that the ones who are oldest when they're taken seem to understand what they have lost. Yeah, they, they, they lose their sexual function completely and, uh, and yeah, they're just kind of sad and angry all the time. Yeah. Um, even more horrifying, um, the ruined people, when they reach their late teens, they hit a growth spurt where they turn into giants painfully and loudly yeah they describe one as uh having spent nine days screaming as his skull grew to twice its original size yeah they talk about pressing their ear up against somebody's leg or against their skull and like hearing the you know just the the, the creaking of the bones expanding um and then uh yeah when they hit 30 they die of something that sounds a lot like 
like radiation poisoning. Yeah, like the like their 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 hair turns gray and falls out. They age very very rapidly, um, and it's almost like they they rot from the inside. Yeah, a lot of open sores. Yeah. Um. The, oh, the 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 the, the growth spurt. I, I liked what they hit on. Like, okay, so you know how people teeth. You know, when like when they're babies and stuff, and then they scream a lot. Um, imagine your whole body is teething for the uh, for the process of most of a year, um, and that's a little yeah. bit what is what it is. Uh, fucked up and horrifying. Good body horror. Yep, it's pretty rough. Yeah, the wolves themselves themselves uh, not actually wolves. This isn't like a werewolf kind of thing. They're actually they're humanoids they wear these metal wolf masks that do, that dissolve in the sun so that you know if they you know <laughs> are knocked over or what have you they don't really leave a trace so that's why nobody's ever really examined one uh they ride uniformly gray horses uh and they use swords made of light and throw these tracking and exploding flying drones uh called sneeches yeah this is the first time we see this right yeah um, um, if if that sounds familiar, put a pin in it because you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, so they have lightsabers and things that are like the golden snitches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, Roland makes a big deal about saying, really? All the horses are gray? <laughs> and Overholster's like, yeah, butthole, that's what I said. <laughs> and then they just move past it. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense because that they are a farming community. They've got horses. Um they should know the unlikely, how unlikely it is that forty plus people would all be able to get uniformly gray horses. Yeah, yeah. So Overholster's like, look, this is what we're dealing with. You guys are not going to be able to handle them, even if you are gunslingers, which I don't believe. Right. Uh, so they say, well, how about a demonstration? Let's let's hold a Wild West show. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, give me give me some of your finest dishes. Yes, the finer the give me your for special plates. Um, <laughs> saying okay, when gunslingers come by, some crockery gets busted. All right, fine, cool. I guess everybody's showing off. Um, and what he does, he gives uh, I, I forget the exact personnel, uh, but he gives two of them the revolvers. He throws up uh, four plates, and they are all shot out of midair. He's um, just Jake. He says, Jake, come over here. Oh, yes. And it, Jake, like, inst Jake instinctively, because he's just trying to prove, like, look, even this kid is about to impress you with <laughs> how much of a gunslinger he is. Yeah, and, and he just kind of signals to Jake. Jake walks over instinctive, instinctively, like, loosens his holster. And then he, yeah, Roland, Roland throws the plates, and Jake just instantly vaporizes them. Yes. Uh, leaving then, leaving enough shards yeah. for Eddie and Susanna to catch out of midair. Yeah, everybody just darts around, like, all right, check out, check this out. <laughs> He just blew up those plates basically all at once, and then we caught most of the pieces <laughs> without without me even telling them that's what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, and Overholzer says, well, there's a big difference between plates and wolves, and Roland says, it's all movement. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's pretty impressive. Um, and that seems to be uh, convincing, uh, at least uh, at least enough to uh, continue the early stage of the uh, stages of the engagement, saying, "Hey, what we're going to do, you know, we we can we can delay this decision a little bit. We're going to come to Caliber and Sturgis. We're going to you know bunk up wherever we can, and we're going to scope out the town, figure out if it's even possible to defend before we say yay or nay." Yeah. 
Because they have, what, four weeks until the wolves show up and they decide they're going to just spend a week kind of yeah. ears to the ground figuring out a plan. Yeah, figure out figure out if uh, if everybody's on the level, right? Get a plan, uh, put together enough forces, convince the town uh, to uh, rise up in defense of itself along with yeah. them. And they say, in a week, we'll tell you whether we think your town is defensible. Yes. And then later when they're talking alone, Eddie's like, what What are we going to do if the town isn't defensible? And Roland's <laughs> like, ah, don't worry, bro, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do we do if nobody fights alongside us? Ah, well, Jaffords will do it. Maybe his wife, too. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're pretty confident about it. Eddie, meanwhile, doesn't feel like anything is right. Um, Roland is worried that Eddie thinks that something uh, is wrong with Susanna. But no, Eddie has more of just a omnipresent sense of derealization. Yeah, something something is wrong with everything. Yes, everything has gone 19. And that is the only way that he can describe what he's feeling. And this is a little bit of like a summary or recovering ground of the strangeness of this world. You know, saying, like, hey, why do people sing, hey, Jude, why does so much stuff from our world show up here? You know, and it isn't even an, it, it isn't even just that it is like, you know, there are times where we're just going along. Like even when we were, when we were having that meal, none of this felt real to me. So, yeah. The only time things feel real is when he's with Susanna. Yes. And he says, well, maybe shooting some wolves will straighten this out because, you know, possibly what he's reacting to is the sense that he is, you know, being driven forward to this conflict by Ka and he needs to rise to it. Yeah. He's got some of the, some of that bloodlust that's part and parcel of being a gunslinger. Yep. Starting to chafe at him a little bit. (laughs) He's got the steel. Demon dogs nipping at his heels. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so they say, all right, well, we're going to go to sleep. Uh, for some reason, dessert was more muffin ball. So get ready to trip, I guess. Um, and they resolve saying, Hey, um, if we go toe dash, we need to stick together, especially when the, when the chimes start, Andy calls them the common chimes, not common writers, common chimes. Um, I think that's an anime or a Sentai show. I just, okay. I just know the words sound like other words. I'll take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and there's a pretty affecting scene here because Roland has a memory uh, dug up by an offhanded remark. People know about the fall of Gilead. It's still a fairy tale, but Overholster straight up says, like, are we to believe that you're, that you're walking around here in Gilead that fell so long ago, you know, from these stories that we heard about the battle of Jericho Hill and things like that. And that causes Roland to have this kind of flashback dream before he even begins to go toe dash, remembering in vivid detail, uh, Cuthbert's death, you know, as he, uh, dies with an arrow in his eye, laughing about how doomed they all are. Yeah, and this uh, this ends up with this sort of foreshadowing moment here, where Cuthbert is carrying the the horn of Eld. Yes. Uh, what do you What do you imagine that thing looks like? Is it like a trumpet, or is it like a like a cat like a drinking horn? You know, like a like a cow horn that's been hollowed out to. I I think of it, man. I forget I forget the name of it, but there is like in the in in the Bible there is a particular horn that is made to look like a ram's horn or something like that. It's kind of curved and made a made a little bit of bone, and it is specifically meant to be like blown before battle. Uh, I, I, like, I, I forget uh, the name of like, it, but I b- good. 
Boromir had one of those. It was always talking about Boromir winding his horn. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that I think of because it is specifically of Eld. I imagine it being a little bit rustic, right? You know, being made, being made of something else. I don't think of like a, you know, the trumpet that will end the world. Um, they even showed what is it when they were when they were um, advertising the movie. One of the first images that they showed, like Stephen King tweeted this out was an image of the horn with text over it that said the second time around. Mm. Yeah. Spoilers, buddy. Oh, that's that 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 that, 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 that that is vague and without context. It is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it turns out when they make the movie, it's, just, it's like actually a baritone saxophone. It's huge. <laughs> that's why that's why he didn't want to carry it. It's like no. why what? this is makes it really hard to fight, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 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 his bloodlust, he neglected to pick it up and play the traditional uh, Gilead uh, battle hymn, which is just careless whisper, <laughs> <laughs> right? The theme from Night Court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit of an encore of Baker Street. <laughs> But no, um, he, he... <laughs> Kent Cuthbert just switches to yakety sax as they charge the oncoming army. Oh, that is so Cuthbert. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so so Roland has this dream about when all of his best friends died, and and it the the dream the flashback just kind of ends on a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Absolutely. Note. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. I mean, he's still here having this dream, so obviously something weird must have happened. Yeah. And so he he forgot to pick up the horn. That is that 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 is takeaway here. But he is still having this dream. He segues right from one into another because he sees yeah, he the wakes up in New York. Wakes up in New York. He sees the 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 the, the, the great characters, the great signs saying, "Don't walk." Uh, he's in a crosswalk. He is toe dash. Everything is dark because of Black Thirteen's uh, influence here. Uh, everybody's walking around them again, like the matrix, um, specifically somebody who is walking around is Susanna who is here and has her legs back. Yeah. She's pretty excited about that. Oh yeah. She's dancing. And it doesn't matter that she's barefoot in New York city. Roland dress to warn her like, Hey, if you step on something, it's going to, you know, you're going to be hurt back. And if you die in the game, you die in real life, Susanna. Right. If you step on a crack here, <laughs> you break your mother's back in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> you think this is a game um but uh she is she, she is undeterred she is just so happy to have her legs back you know eddie is happy for her as well jake is around even Oi is here this time too the whole gang is here in new york um that joy is short-lived because they find a copy of the new york times this is where <laughs> Susanna doesn't know who carter is and uh gives eddie uh some friendly ribbing about uh, about President Reagan, like that would be a thing that happens. Right, and, she's, and she still thinks that Eddie and Jake are just screwing with her because they both <laughs> insist that Ronald Reagan is eventually the president. Right, they 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 have agreed to trick her. Um, yeah, but they find this they they find this paper um and notice that the date um is later than it ought to be. So it is not the same day that Jake seventy seven left um and went to Dutch Hill. Um, you know, more time has passed, uh, kind of bringing the sinking realization that time moves about one and a half times faster here. And when the lot is sold, they are done. So they are kind of careening toward this literally cosmic deadline of July the 15th. It, that, that 
pressure is somewhat given the lie by the fact that their plan still involves also going to 1964. Yes. It's so we, we, we might as well talk about this a little bit. The idea of, of, of Keystone earth and this, I think it only comes in either at the end of this book or into book six is that there is one true earth and multiple kind of like fake almost earths. Um, and that the, those almost earths are where, like Callahan comes from the one that was <laughs> brought into existence uh, in Jerusalem's lot. Uh, uh, so they're gonna they're, they're gonna go into a fake one in the past and just bring some money back that they have to get into the real one within a fixed amount of time. Yes. So time progresses in the Keystone Earth, no matter what. It only goes one way, and you don't get more chances. Um, but you can go to these near earths and get basically currency or things that you need, um, you know, to affect the things in Keystone Earth. Aspirin or a popkin from Blimpies. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that they specifically invoke Blimpy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the funniest, the funniest named um, uh, sandwich shop, I guess outside of Potbelly. But I guess that's more of just a a, a dark reminder of what might happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pot, yeah, pot belly sandwiches out there. Yeah, no. Yeah, so we got to think all pot belly sandwiches. It's okay. <laughs> just, just like all of those sandwich places are okay. Right. Yeah. Um. So that's the way that that works. So it like the it it only <laughs> the deadline only makes a little bit of sense when you understand that the different Earths are technically different, but one of them is true. Yeah, but I guess we just don't understand that yet no. as readers, yeah. right? And that's the, the, the this all just it, it it just feels different in a way where it's like, all right, this is this is trying to fit a thing that needs to happen as opposed to you know the first season of Lost when it was just <laughs> oh this would this would be cool and ominous <laughs> like sort of the problem of suddenly like ah crap I'm like seventy five percent of the way done and I need to like start tying up these loose ends. Yeah, it's like he was over there designing mobiles and cool bird feeders and stuff like that and realized, oh, shit, I should have been using my workshop to build a clockwork machine that would accomplish something. And so now we are getting into this place where all the gears have to be fit into place, right? Like no. he is establishing a fixed cosmology, whereas before he had, you know, things like the beams and the guardians and, you know, some allusions to other stuff that he had been, that he had been working on or sussing out in different novels here, all of like all of the teeth have to match. Yeah, I mean, when they when they are just like, oh yeah, there's just these beams that hold the world up. Like, oh okay, that's yeah. that's cool. But then when you actually have to like write the RPG source book <laughs> that explains what happens if somebody points a lightsaber at one of them, it, it just gets it gets a different character. It does, you know? yeah. Um, right, wrong, or whatever. It is a uh, a marked difference. It is a it, it is a break in a different just a different way for things to uh, sprawl out. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I imagine that, that as a reader, I, an individual person is going to have more or less tolerance for that kind of thing. I mean, there's probably some people who are like, oh, yeah, the series gets really good after the fourth book and yeah. when it really finally starts explaining things. Um, and other people are going to say, like, ah, no, I feel like it, it definitely crushes the bunny a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that in general, at least in my opinion, uh, Stephen King is better at 
writing interesting questions than he is writing satisfying answers to those questions. Absolutely. And like, absolutely. Part of it is just like the scope of the ideas that you're dealing with. That's just kind of inherent to that kind of fiction, you know? Yes. It, like invoking the mystery of a big world that you don't understand is always going to be better and more awe inspiring than like, Oh no, it was this. It, it, it's because of this bowling ball under the church. Right. <laughs> Like, wait, what? Really? <laughs> okay. Oh. Yeah. Um. I. I. I kind of wish I didn't know that, and <laughs> they were just kind of blinking in and out of existence for no reason. No. But okay. Yeah. Um. It really is. It, 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 you can tell at this point that there had been a little bit of a series Bible that was starting to be compiled. Like Robin Firth was putting that together alongside him. Um. As a you know basically putting together what would become the concordances. Uh, yeah, what what is the I, I'm sorry if you've gone over this on the show before, but what was that done like for him or just. Yeah, that that, that was done for him. So Robin Firth, okay. um, I, I guess that she was just a really big Dark Tower fan from the from the early days and around book number four. Uh, she had, you know, just gone to work for him, uh, kind of acting as somebody who uh, basically like, like like a continuity editor or continuity manager um, on a set, like at a movie saying like, oh, yeah, like that actually that can't happen yet. Or you can't be wearing that because X, Y, Z. She had taken right. all these things and broke it, broken it out into a reference text for him to for him to go to. Um, there are two different concordances and then one that kind of like wraps them up together. One about books one through four and the second about books five through six. So like they, they were done in kind of two different phases. The one that was preparing for the, uh, the, the writing of the final trilogy. And then the one that was done after or during the final trilogy to uh, um, basically be a reference for readers as well. All right. And it kind of probably paved the way for, because like at the point of the dark tower being written, it kind of doesn't matter. Right. anymore right but yeah it's weird like i mean it just sort of reads like a wiki yeah it's yeah. uh it's real interesting like I, I i sleep with them like they're next to my bed on my nightstand um and i just kind of poke around thinking about like oh yeah, yeah i remember that person yeah it just bears out like flipping through like yeah. it's uh yeah like um, a like a you treat it like a monster manual not like a not like a novel yes yeah it's a it's it's straight up just a reference text but really useful <laughs> Yeah. Um, anyway, I, sorry, sorry for that uh, diversion. But, no, um, that 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 is uh, that, that that is perfectly fine. Uh, there are only a couple more details that we need to that we need to get to, uh, including one that is really really good. So time is moving faster. Uh, they're getting closer to the lot, and they are getting hit with these overwhelming positive memories. You know, the the proximity to the rose is giving them a sense that everything is right. You know, Eddie is remembering. Uh, I think. Uh, going to the theater with his brother, um, you know, and pretty much everybody else is just crying because, you know, it is so, so warm and comforting, right? They're all, they're all seeing the faces of people from their past in the reflections in the broken glass uh, surrounding the rose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and all of, just all of the, it describes all the people that you know from Roland stories and like, hey, there's Jake's family that you know about. And then here's a bunch of like, <laughs> crazy sounding dirt bags that were in Eddie's life. <laughs> like, like, God, what a Johnny, you know, Johnny Polio, the guy with the club foot, yeah. the, ma the mad fucking Hungarian. Like, what are you? I want that you book. Did you live in a mad magazine? Like, what? <laughs> this is Johnny Polio is coming. 
<laughs> yeah, I forgot about Johnny Polio. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, regardless of how uh, you know how great it is for Susanna, I think to see her parents again, she has reservations about even being there. Um, on the outside of the of the lot, the sign is different. Has a poem that ends up being pretty important. Uh, oh, Susanna Mio, divided girl of mine, done parked her rig in the Dixie Pig in the year of ninety nine. Um, Which is weird, right? Because the Dixie Pig is is the the site of some of Odetta's nonsense in the sixties. Yes. Um, and and also, wait, I need to go back and look because I can't remember the Dixie Pig factors in uh in her past like the dixie pig is definitely a huge part of the song of Susanna. i thought it was the like honky tonk that odetta would go to when she was getting up to trouble uh let me take a look real quick oh wow there are a bunch of restaurants called the dixie pig that i absolutely would not go to (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um no no it is oh, uh, okay yeah sorry sorry i didn't mean to like to say actually no you're wrong i just oh no no uh, no i i i just i uh i guess i i am coming to this way like i read the last trilogy once when it came out oh yeah and uh so this is basically all new to me yep huh, okay well yeah um it's referring to another place in new york that is going to factor in um Susanna is not thrown off by the fact that she uh that her name is featured on this she's more like oh that's weird uh says Susanna mio uh instead of Susanna mia it doesn't trip anything for her for her for that um additionally earlier <laughs> roland let slip uh and called Susanna mia by mistake and she didn't notice that either yeah yeah He's really nervous. It talks about him like just freezing to see if she's going to react to it. Yeah. <laughs> Which like that doesn't seem like a super Roland thing to do. Like, ooh. It is, it, like all of this hesitation about it doesn't seem very Roland like at all, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, there, 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 there's a lot of existential doubt that is brought in uh, that is specifically not existential doubt, but just more hesitation than you normally would exhibit that is specifically addressed in book seven, I think. Mm. Um yeah. Susanna, she decides not to go in um, saying, oh, well, the, the broken glass is going to cut my feet. Who knows how that'll affect me when I go back into the when we get back to the Kalas. Um, she really just doesn't want to get near near the uh, the rose because because of Mia's baby. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, she she could just, you know, ride on Eddie's back. She's done it before. Uh, but this is just a ploy to not go in. So always yeah, she's, she's afraid of the white. Like her, her demon child is making her afraid of goodness. Yes. Yeah. Um, Roland just kind of wishes that she'd do it anyway and maybe solve two problems at once. Um, see, see what happens. Uh, while she's out, um, she loses seven minutes. You know, she's watching a clock on a bank sign and it goes from like, 343 to 350 or something like that uh and during that time um you know she can't account for any of it uh she also lost her legs again she just wakes up with them gone oh is there you know unable to talk really um nothing else is really wrong the bigger marked difference though is that things are going sideways in the world of todash because she sees what appears to be walking corpses 
Uh, we learn from Roland a little bit later that this is the vagrant dead. Yeah, dead people who are uh, stuck in Todash because they died too suddenly for them to be aware of it or are like, nah, I didn't die. Yep. <laughs> I don't care how many worms are crawling in and out of my face. How many autopsy scars I have. <laughs> I think Eddie calls it like a, like an autopsy tattoo or something like that. Yeah, that was a little. I, I just assumed that was an idiom that I didn't know. Yeah, uh, same. Eddie, Eddie's full of, full of those. Um, so, yeah, Susanna, meanwhile, is freaking out because, uh, you know, she says like, oh, now I understand. I feel like I understand how women who have beaten cancer feel when they go in for a routine checkup and the doctor sees a shadow on her, on her lung, she is getting more of a, more of a hint that her joining of her different uh, component personalities is not necessarily as complete or as permanent as she thought. She yeah. feels like she is breaking apart again. Um, yeah. Inside the lot there, there's a construction sign that has some graffiti on it. There's a slight change to the text of the sign, but it's really just a new phone number. Uh, that I didn't investigate to see if it added up to 19 because it was too many too many numbers. It did not. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was like 13 and 17 or something. Okay. Um, also, we uh, get, I think, the first appearance of our good friend, Bango Skank. Uh, yeah. Do they... Do, do you not see that in the wastelands? Oh, shit. I, you might. Um, I, th I, I think of it as... <laughs> I think of it as primarily a uh, a last trilogy thing. Uh, Bango Skank is the name of a graffiti artist who appears, um, whose work appears in many significant pieces of the Dark Tower series. His, his, he first appeared in one of Peter Straub's short stories, The Buffalo Hunter. It's seen in Topeka. Okay. Yeah, when, when, when they're in Topeka and in a New York uh, library stall. Um. Yeah. So we're going to see a little bit more uh, of uh, of Bango Skank uh, as as time goes on, and I, I feel like I'm tracing a minor Dark Souls character here, um, but uh, just under understanding where he comes from and how he how he gets to be so ubiquitous is so good. <laughs> um, I'm going to save that for when we get there because it's too good to too good to say now. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, the wiki only talks about Bango Skank being mentioned only in Song of Susanna, so that's like clearly not accurate because we no. have just seen him here. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Inside the lot, uh, like we said, we have Bango Skank, but we also have the rose itself. Um, and as they peer inside, you know, to the, the sun that is contained within, um, they see a whole bunch of visions of basically positive coincidences or near misses that would have resulted in disaster you know so yeah people, like they see uh albert einstein almost getting hit by a car and not yeah they they they, they see a they, they see a german officer burning an intercepted um communication about the plans for d-day yeah. um see so some other stuff they is the they see a, four people rescue a kid from a monster whose head is just an eye that's got to be from some specific other stephen king story right i can't recall I, I i i looked through like a list of short stories trying to trying to see if it would have matched with something i think that they looked in on a call of cthulhu campaign mm, yeah i guess that makes sense <laughs> yeah um it didn't evoke anything that i've that, that i've read or i'm familiar with so i don't mm. I don't know. Um, but just the idea is that the white and the rose itself, um, you know, is responsible for just kind of things that almost go bad actually going right. 
um, again, more of these coincidences, more of these coincidences, more of this ka. We're looking at these important moments as they unfold um, within the rose itself. And Roland kind of has this epiphany when he, you know, sees the rose and feels its presence that, you know, there are two hubs of existence. You know, there is the tower in his world and there is the rose here. And this kind of firms his resolve that they absolutely positively have to own this land so they can protect it because regardless, there is a weakening just like the tower in his world is, you know, being eroded, just like the beams are being brought down. Um, this itself is sick. Um, back, like back in the wasteland when Jake saw the, uh, or had a dream of a, a worm crawling in and out of the rose as a, as a bulldozer bared down on it. Yeah, I wonder if, do they ever specifically reference the poem, The Sick Rose? I don't know. What is the poem, The Sick, the it's, Sick Rose? It's a, it's a William Blake poem um, that I remember reading in college. It's very short. It goes, O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love doth thy life destroy. So it feels like that is referencing that at least, and... Even, I mean, Stephen King definitely read William Blake, right? Oh, 100%. And he is yeah, also... Yeah, like a rose under attack by a worm. Just like, oh, right, there's this poem about that. Yeah, and just I know that crimson is also another word for red, uh, and roses happen to be red, but the invocation of crimson joy in this also, you know, uh, yeah. and, and dark secret love. Like, there's a lot that points to this. I, you know, it, that seems like a weird punch for him to pull, especially when we start getting specific invocation of um, the leaf, the stone, the unfound door. You know, in in, yeah. in reference to uh, in, in reference to writing, how that kind of becomes literalized. Like, he very much um, does pull elements from from poetry of the likes and era of Blake into into this. So good poll. Yeah, I can remember if it was ever specifically uh, called out or because, I mean, he'll put there's a lot of just what is it, an epigram? Like he'll just do a lot of like a line from a poem in the head of a chapter or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. Couldn't, couldn't remember if I'd ever seen him do that one specifically. But like that feels like the, you know, <laughs> feels like a, an evocation. Yeah. He'll also do um, he'll also do song lyrics. There's the, there, there's a detail here because of because, of course, it has to be. Um, there's a another Rolling Stone song playing. So back in the wastelands, when Jake came here, it was playing uh, "Paint It Black." Um, you know, just uh, just in the air around this. This time, they are hearing "19th Nervous Breakdown" because, of course, yeah. Eddie says, "Yeah, yeah." Um, all of this ends. The chimes start. Jake picks up something where the key used to be, the key that got him through the door in Dutch Hill, um, and they are ushered back to End World. Uh, narrowly averting being separated by, I guess, the closing of the window to Todash space. Um, and the thing that Jake grabbed and brought back is a twinner, another version of his bowling bag from the day he from the day he left. Um, it is a bright pink bowling bag, except instead of saying nothing but strikes at midtown lanes, it says nothing but strikes at midworld lanes. And, we are and also, it's it's made out of some kind of mithril or something. <laughs> it is. It is. It is specifically. Uh, it's. It, it is. Uh, I was about to say everything proof. It's a lot of things proof. Um, and, and Roland knows exactly what is going to be housed in this bowling bag. 
Yeah, and I feel like even even uh, not remembering anything about this, like the the reader also has a fairly good idea. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um. There there is another black ball that will be uh that will that will find its home nestled in that. Um. Yeah. I don't know why I said that in such a like weirdly provocative way, but here we are. Um. Yeah, and that's the chapter. That is uh, the end of this section. Todash. Thank you, Zach. Do you have any kind of like final thoughts about the uh, about the stuff we talked about here? No, not uh, not really. It just this this section was very much set up, right? Yes. Like we're just learning a bunch of stuff, and you know, got a couple of uh, got a couple of MacGuffins called out, and now it seems like we're ready for the actual plot to start. Yes. Um, the next section telling tales is going to, uh, kind of be Jerusalem or Jerusalem. It's going to be Salem's lot too. Essentially, we're going to get a lot of, uh, we're going to a lot of, get a lot of backstory, but also we are going to, um, learn and understand the specific ways that the town can defend itself and progress, uh, this plot, uh, this plot to, uh, you know, <laughs> buy that land and save the second hub that we have just now learned about. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the episodes about that. Yeah. Uh, so, Zach, where can people find you? Oh, they can find me at Zap Jackson on Twitter. Uh, they can find my uh, my video game, West of Loathing, at westofloathing.com or on Steam. Yeah. Um, and also listen to you on Video Games Hot Dog, my favorite video games podcast. Yeah, I always forget about that. Yeah. <laughs> and you always remind me. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it is a very good show. Uh, you, Kevin, Riff, and Jim are very very funny and insightful ah oh, thanks buddy yeah um you can find me at the other shows here on duckfeed.tv you can watch my horror my horror game streams uh twitch.tv slash duckfeed tv you know the usual stuff to do to support the shows and the network patreon uh um itunes ratings and reviews telling friends uh etc and on the line don't want to prolong this admin section just want to say uh, thank you so much for listening. We will see you, see you next time. And until then, long days and pleasant nights.